everyone. Welcome back to the Religious Studies Project. It is Monday morning, which means we have a brand new episode for you. I'm Andy Alexander, and joining me today is... Savannah Finver. It's great to have you here. Thanks so much, Andy. So today, you are interviewing Craig Martin, I believe. Can you tell us a little bit about this episode? Yeah, so it was an absolute thrill for me to get to sit down with Craig. Um, as I'm sure folks already know, uh, he was my undergrad advisor. So, uh, and actually, one of my first experiences coming into religious studies right before I was a grad student was that I got to join Craig on a trip to the AAR. And I got to watch him be interviewed by our own Dave McConaughey. So it's kind of like everything's coming full circle now that I get to do the interview for his next book because that previous interview was for Capitalizing Religion. And now he has his new book, Discourse and Ideology, coming out. So I got to be the host for that one. And it was really exciting to just sit down and chat about some of the work that's that Craig's been doing. He started work for this project while I was still in school with him. So some of the chapters came out of classes that I had been a part of. And it was really cool to just rehash some of those conversations. As the title of the book indicates, the book is called Discourse and Ideology. So we spent a lot of time talking about the importance of discourse and rhetoric studies, as well as ideology critique in the study of religion. One thing that Craig mentioned was that a a lot of people seem to think that discourse studies and ideology critique are fundamentally incompatible because discourse focuses on language, whereas ideology critique focuses on material conditions. But I think having read the book now, I think that Craig has a really great way of just speaking very clearly on some of these topics and and making the connections that I think for some of us don't come as naturally as they do for him. So um, I'm really hoping listeners will enjoy all he has to say. That sounds excellent. I can't wait to hear it. Let's listen in. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the Religious Studies Project. I'm Savannah Finver, and I'll be your host for this episode. Today, I am absolutely thrilled to be joined by my undergraduate advisor and continued mentor and colleague, Dr. Craig Martin. Dr. Martin has been a visitor to our show before, but for those of you who don't already know, he is professor of religious studies at St. Thomas Aquinas College in New York. Some of his works include um, Masking Hegemony, A Genealogy of Liberalism, Religion, and the Private Sphere, Capitalizing Religion, Ideology, and the Opiate of the Bourgeoisie, and A Critical Introduction to the Study of Religion. He also currently edits a book series with Bloomsbury titled Critiquing Religion, Discourse, Culture, Power. And today we're here to discuss his forthcoming book, or at least forthcoming at the time of this interview, Discourse and Ideology, a Critique of the Study of Culture, to be published with Bloomsbury in November of this year, 2021. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Martin, and congratulations on the release of your new book. Thank you. I'm pretty excited about this one. Yeah, I am too. Let's dive right in. And I think the first thing I want to focus on uh, here for our discussion today is the title of this newest book. Once again, it's Discourse and Ideology, a Critique of the Study of Culture. I think one of the first things that might be on our listeners' minds is that this doesn't really sound like, you know, a typical title that you might find in religious studies as opposed to, for example, Capitalizing Religion, your previous book. I was wondering if you could walk us through how you came up with your idea for discourse and ideology and how you envision maybe some of its implications for religious studies scholarship going forward. Throughout my career, I have been doing what I consider to be discourse analysis and ideology critique. 
I have applied discourse analysis and ideology critique to uh, forms of discourses that are about religions, right? Uh, religious traditions, looking at, you know, Christian rhetoric, Islamic rhetoric, or um, the discourse of religious studies itself, you know, the world religions paradigm, things like that. But I wanted to lay out a comprehensive defense of, of how best to go about this approach, especially because for most listeners, I hope that when they hear discourse analysis, that they think Foucault, there is a long tradition of people who do discourse analysis who say, well, you can't do ideology critique and discourse analysis at the same time. Uh, because after Foucault, there's and Derrida and other post-structuralists, the, the view is is that you can't make claims about ideology because to make a claim about ideology says that this is a false view of the world in contrast with the world as it really is. And after you know post-structuralism, we don't have a justification for saying this is how the world really is. So you can do discourse analysis, but you can't contrast one account of the world with another because you don't you don't have a reality to contrast it with. I don't think that this is the case. Um, I think that that claim about ideology critique uh, misunderstands uh, Foucault's criticism of ideology. To be fair, he does systematically criticize the concept of ideology in his writings, especially in the 70s. Um, but I don't think that uh, the conclusion that most people arrive at is the one that he arrived at or that he would want his readers to arrive at. So sitting back, right, how can we do both discourse analysis from a post-structuralist perspective and also hang on to ideology critique at the same time? And so people have pressed me on my scholarship, right? How can you claim to be doing ideology critique? Well, I have an answer, but I had not formulated it or put it down in writing, and I wanted to do that to offer a systematic defense of, of how we can do both. I think that this this uh, approach, right, is not relevant only to religious studies, right, that discourse analysis and ideology critique can be applied to quote-unquote religious discourses, but it can be applied to any kind of discourse, nationalist discourse, racist discourse, sexist discourse, Etc. So um, I think that the book defense discourse analysis and ideology critique. I hope that people in religious studies will find it useful for um, analyzing religious traditions or the academic study of religion. But I don't see it as necessarily just about religion. It, it, it could be applied to any any kind of approach. The other thing that I think I want to point out is the emphasis on post-structuralism uh, in the book. I I say this in the preface, I kind of consider myself lucky to have gone to grad school at a time where I could still take classes on post-structuralist thinkers. I took classes like Derrida and Lacan, Freud and Jung, Heidegger, Kant's first critique, took multiple classes on Hegel and German idealism. Those are important as sources for post-structuralist approaches. So I was deeply trained in post-structuralist literature. However, when I read contemporary scholars talking about post-structuralism, most of the time I feel like they turn post-structuralist into a straw man or straw women, that they, they misconstrue what people like Derrida, Foucault, and Judith Butler were actually saying. And I find this infuriating that that's a great critique if only they had actually said this thing that you're critiquing them for. <laughs> Right. So I wanted to go back and defend not just, hey, this is how we can do discourse analysis and ideology critique, but 
In addition, if we have a fuller understanding of post-structuralist approaches, it makes them more useful. So I wanted to kind of clear a space for still using post-structuralism rather than abandoning it or thinking that it's old hat. It's that was, you know, stuff they were doing in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and we can throw that out and return to talking about the real world now. Um, I think that there's still a great deal of value for us to learn from post-structuralist approaches and, in addition, from their philosophical sources like Heidegger and Husserl and Hegel. So I wanted to kind of outline, this is where these folks were coming from, and these idiotic things that you accuse them of saying, they never actually said. So I think that to understand this book, on the one hand, I want to defend discourse analysis and ideology critique from a post-structuralist perspective. And in addition, I just want to defend post-structuralism against caricatures of it. I think in reading the manuscript over and prep for our interview today, I think that was one of the things that stood out to me was just how clearly you were able to outline some of the main ideas, I guess, main thoughts of some of these major thinkers. And even as a graduate student myself, I can say, like, we don't even scratch the surface of many of these people. You know, we get to read maybe an intro from one of their texts, maybe an article here or there. And so there is no real comprehensive, you know, there there is no class to my knowledge, you know, solely on Foucault's thought or solely on Butler's thought or even, you know, putting the two in conversation with with each other. And so that was one thing I found really, really useful and, and really helpful about the text. So I'm excited for others to get to experience that. Hopefully others will be inspired by these thinkers that, again, I still think they have important things to teach us. And uh, I want to include their lessons into our scholarship. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more trying to find ways to incorporate them strategically into my own projects now. So definitely your book has been a really useful resource for me in that regard and helping me clarify some of my thoughts about even, you know, why and how post-structuralism can be useful. But I'll, I'll leave it for readers to, to read your thoughts and, uh, and uh, decide for themselves what they think about that. I want to talk a little bit about how in the preface of your book, you say um, at one point that an alternate title could have been How Words Work. And I thought that was just really fantastic because it reminded me of how in taking undergraduate classes with you, one of your greatest strengths I felt as a professor was your ability to take these ideas that seem really complicated. You know, when you come to a text by Hegel, Heidegger, Derrida, especially for an undergrad, you know, that's so intimidating to come to those kinds of texts. And you have a way of really distilling their main points into a much more accessible language. Obviously, you mentioned discourse analysis a lot in your description of why discourse and ideology, of course, discourse, uh, <laughs> you know, how you came to that idea. Since this is a central theme for the book, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why understanding how words work is so important to our scholarship maybe even especially in our current political moment. Just to summarize, the section that, that you're talking about where I say the book could have been called How Words Work, what I say there is, um, and here I'll read some of what I wrote, three things worth noting about rhetoric include the following. It is likely that most of my readers are daily surrounded by clever rhetoric. Two, in addition, value-laden rhetoric is likely constitutive of the official structure of the organizations in which you live and work. Universities have charters or mission statements. These things are not just documents that are there for show. 
Sometimes they are trotted out to justify, hey, we're going to begin this new initiative because it's useful for the student's intellectual, moral, social, and spiritual growth, for example. That's from my college's mission statement. These mission statements and other documents, they're loaded with value-laden terms that people can appeal to to justify certain kinds of social projects that they want to accomplish. And then I say three, those readers situated in a university context likely produce such rhetoric themselves on many occasions, using lofty terms with positive associations such as critical thinking, justice, sustainability, or mental health. These are all value-laden words, but they're ones that we use regularly. At my college, we have attempted to increase the number of mental health resources for students and to persuade the administration to take that seriously, we have to use rhetoric. We have to use value-laden terms. We have to talk about the student's moral, social, and spiritual growth, for instance. Uh, Not that I would use those particular ones, but we have to use rhetoric like that to persuade the administration to take seriously the fact that maybe we shouldn't punish our students for having mental health issues, but rather help them. The thing that we're using rhetoric in that situation is, is not a criticism. It's just an acknowledgement of this is how the world goes around. People use rhetoric to persuade other people. And if you want to understand how the world goes around, you should be really sensitive to how do people use value-laden rhetoric? How do they use value-laden words? The book is very much about how, how do people use words? How do those words have positive and negative associations built into them? And how do they use those kinds of words to, to tell stories that persuade other people to take seriously some certain social agendas and ignore others. The last chapter is a case study that attempts to apply the method of discourse analysis and ideology critique to racist discourses in the U.S., specifically um, PragerU. For those of you who don't know, PragerU is a propaganda institution. They produce five-minute videos on the internet. A lot of them are on YouTube, and they also have them on their own website. They do these five-minute conservative propaganda videos persuading people to adopt conservative values. And I point out that they systematically portray blacks in America negatively, right? That they talk about black on black crime. They talk about how uh, African-American families, the fathers leave them so that they have these single parent families, or they emphasize the myth of meritocracy. Well, if only they worked hard, they could succeed. It's not surprising that those family members of mine who watch those videos over and over and over again, they come away with a lack of sympathy for African-American poverty in our country, right? If they are systematically exposed to stories about African-Americans that depict them in negative ways, and if they're never exposed to other discourses, no wonder they think that Black Lives Matter is a joke. If that was all I was exposed to, I might also feel similarly. But we have to understand why so many people, for instance, are hostile to a group like Black Lives Matter, we have to understand what kind of rhetoric are these people situated in? What what kind of rhetoric washes over them like the tides? That's fundamentally uh, part of why they feel the way they do. Because disc- and, and this is something that I emphasize um, throughout the book, discourses or rhetoric produces sympathies and antipathies. They teach people who to be sympathetic towards and who to be hostile towards. Our conservative 
propaganda in the U.S. has systematically produced antipathies towards African Americans. And if we want to understand why Black Lives Matter is seen as a joke by so many white Americans, we might look at the propaganda that they're consuming and reproducing. That makes a lot of sense to me. I wonder, having had the privilege of already read the text, you know, I, I could see one portion of religious studies scholars responding, okay, sure, focus on language is important, but what about the material stuff in the world? I think actually that your text really does account for this, but I was wondering maybe if you could talk a little bit about how we make sense of how post-structuralist critique can actually help us understand how material resources are distributed. To go back to post-structuralism, one of the long-standing critiques of post-structuralism is that it is a kind of Kantianism that uh, People accuse folks like Derrida and Judith Butler of being Kantians who separate out phenomena and noumena, that the world out there is inaccessible. All we have access to is texts or words or things like that. And so that they ignore the material reality beyond the text. I point out that if you read what they say carefully, that's not at all what they're saying. Derrida, right after saying there's nothing outside of the text, explicitly says, of of course, there are bodies with flesh and blood. His point is not at all that all we have is words or all we have is text. However, to understand those bodies, we have to take into account things like words. If human bodies and and social scientific, uh, cognitive science, these discourses focus on how humans respond not logically or rationally or objectively to circumstances, they have deep-seated intuitions that predispose them to respond positively or negatively. Social psychology looks at, you put humans in groups, and they will immediately develop in-group bias and out-group bias. How are those in-group biases and out-group biases produced? There are bodies in the world that have dispositions towards viewing other groups negatively. How are those produced? Well, in part, they're produced through the propaganda that they consume. You can't have groups without discourses that bring those groups into existence. And once they exist, those bodies in those groups have positive and negative intuitions about others in the world. So if we want to understand why do people have positive gut reactions or negative gut reactions in their bodies with their emotions, We can't account for that without, in part, taking account of the discourses that build the communities or uh, social groups that they reside in. I think a part of what I was thinking, too, as I was listening to you respond, was just that that makes sense to me in terms of why discourse discourse analysis and ideology critique have to be used together, right? That ideology critique, in part, is what accounts for the material conditions where discourse analysis focuses on language. So ideology critique, I think... There are certain false narratives that circulate. The earth is not flat. This is monstrable by lots of really good evidence. And if somebody says that the earth is flat, well, they're wrong by, uh, according to the existing evidence. I think that we can offer evidence that a lot of things circulated, for instance, by Prager used propaganda. They explicitly claim that we live in a meritocratic nation where there is more or less equal opportunity. Well, according to the best available evidence, that is simply not true. We live in a world where people do not have equal opportunity. And an ideology critique can point out how, well, 
the, the way that this person describes the world contrasts with the best available evidence that we have about that world. So we can account for the fact that, yeah, uh, it looks like, for example, African-Americans in the U.S. have fewer opportunities than whites in the U.S. systematically and in ways that we have a, a mountain of evidence for. You don't have to take my word for it. There are studies after studies after studies that show that we don't live in a meritocratic nation. Ideology critique allows us to contrast myths like, hey, we have equal opportunity with the evidence that we have that no, that's not in fact the case. And, and I argue in the chapter on domination that we should define dom- domination specifically in a way that draws attention to asymmetrical power relations. This discourse sets up worlds that allocates resources. Who benefits most from that allocation? Who benefits least? When people are socialized to accept certain positive and negative intuitions about other groups, if we, if you have white Americans who are systematically exposed to negative stories about African Americans, what effect does that practically have on African Americans and their opportunities in the world? Domination or an account of domination will ask us to look specifically at how those things work. I think that's really important. And I think that kind of also leads us nicely into the next question that I have. So one of the one of the arguments that you really trace throughout the text is you talk about how starting basically with Hegel, Hegel argued that there that we need to constantly be attentive to to changing definitions of of words, changing discourses, um, in order to understand how we account for certain empirical and phenomenal, you know, events in the world. And when you come to your last, like, I would guess one way of describing it is like theoretical chapter before you do your case study at the end of the text, you introduce some new terms of your own to help us think through some of the ways in which these discourses are functioning and how power and domination work. And you write in this chapter that, quote, the concepts of discourse and ideology are useful because they help bring into relief the causal relations between words and the worlds they constitute an effect. So the two words that you, the two new words that you're introducing here in this chapter are credo-rationalism and recrement. I chose a word that sounded French, but I am I am not well-trained in French or French pronunciation. So I say recrement or recrement. <laughs> yeah, that sounds. I, I just finished my French class this summer, so that sounds. Recrement sounds right to me. Um, <laughs> Good. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, I was wondering if you could kind of explain these terms for us and why you see them as being central for our understanding of how how ideology functions and and how discourse functions. I define credo rationalism as defaulting to the view that people act the way they do because of their beliefs that they report. So, you know, if somebody goes to church every week and participates in mass, why do they do so? Well, credo-rationalism says, well, they report that they believe that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior, so that must be why. Um, Credo-rationalism defaults to the thing they said they believe is the best explanation for why they behave in these ways. I want to accept that perhaps people behave the way they behave because they hold these beliefs, which they report to others. But that may not always be the explanation for their behavior. There are lots of social scientific studies that show maybe people participate in groups not because of their beliefs about gods and goddesses, but because those groups perform useful social functions for them. So growing up, I was deeply involved in my church. 
looking back, I think that that's in part because I, I was kind of a social outcast at school. It was hard for me to find a home and a welcoming group of people to feel at home with at school because I was a nerd and, and a weirdo. Church, they can't turn you away. So I was deeply involved in in a lot of church activities, deeply involved in my youth group, etc. Maybe it was because I believed Jesus Christ was my Lord and Savior. Maybe it was because I needed somewhere to, to be surrounded by people who welcomed me and made me feel comfortable and at home. Which is the explanation, the social scientific explanation or the explanation that I provided at the time, which is I believe, you know, in Jesus, etc., etc.? Um, creator rationalism defaults to, well, Craig must have gone to church because he believed in Jesus. I want to say, well, maybe sometimes there are better explanations than the ones that people give for their own behavior. Credo rationalism is one term, and I contrast it with recrement. Recrement, as I define it, is, to put it crudely, recrement is like bullshit. People produce bullshit all the time. Why do they bullshit other people? It's not because they believe they're bullshit. Credo rationalism is not very good at explaining why people produce bullshit. It's much easier to understand bullshit by looking at, well, what do they want to accomplish? If they want to make sure that they make the sale, (laughs) um, understanding the fact that they need to make the sale to get paid might be a better explanation than they really believe that this car is in excellent condition. So, Recremont, people produce discourses that serve certain social functions for them. That's how I define recognize It's discourses that serve a social function. I give an example in, in the uh, chapter uh, from a silly NBC sitcom called Superstore, which is about some people who work at a place that's basically like Walmart. Um, and there's a, 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 a woman who has a crush on one of her coworkers, but he's actually a subordinate. She misinterprets a bunch of social signals he sends her way. So she thinks that the crush is reciprocated. She comes to him in one episode and says, you won't believe it. The company policy has changed. And now instead of forbidding supervisors from dating subordinates, it's now just strongly discouraged. So we can pursue our love together. And this, this young guy is not at all interested in her doesn't have remotely any kind of crush on her and is in fact probably turned off by her in a number of ways. So he hems and haws for a minute and then he says, well, but you know, the policy does strongly discourage it. So we, we can't do it. A couple episodes later, he dates another supervisor that he is in fact attracted to. Right. So how do we understand what he said? Did he really not want to date her because the policy strongly discouraged such relationships? Well, then it would be hard to explain why he immediately dated somebody else who was his supervisor. It makes much more sense to say that was bullshit that he gave on the spot to avoid being honest with this woman that he wasn't attracted to her. We produce rhetoric like this all the time. All faculty at colleges write reports about how they've met the assessment standards that they set for themselves. And I'm guessing that probably a good half the faculty think that those assessments are bullshit, that they are superficial and, and well, I won't go into a rant on assessment, but <laughs> we produce assessment reports, not because we think that they are useful and that we believe the content that we put in assessment reports, but because that's what's minimal, minimally required for us to keep our jobs, that we have to produce a report that says we met the assessment measures that we set for ourselves. 
That's our life from top to bottom is producing discourses that persuade other people to let us do what we want or leave us alone or make sure that we get paid. Sometimes perhaps we say things because we do truly believe them. Sometimes we say things because we have an internal lawyer that says, look, if you want to close this case, you need to say X, Y, or Z to get done. I think that a great deal of, of what we call, you know, quote unquote, religious discourse is not necessarily strictly believed, but is recrement said by people who want to accomplish something socially. Maybe I said, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, because I wanted to accomplish uh, joining a group that made me feel welcome. And maybe my discourse would be understand not as simply expressing a belief, but as accomplishing something for me as a 16-year-old weirdo. In a sense, this chapter on Recremont is in part directed against cognitive science of religion as it exists in some corners of our field. This is probably a little bit unfair. I'm not super knowledgeable at cognitive science of religion. I've read a, a good bit, but not a ton, and I'm not an expert on it by any means. But a lot of the cognitive science of religion literature focuses on why do people believe in, in gods and goddesses and angels and demons and other things that we don't have any evidence for, right? And they use this term minimally counterintuitive concepts, that maybe they believe in angels because the idea of an angel is minimally counterintuitive, and therefore it sticks in their mind because it's not too crazy distant from reality but is unique and special enough to stick as a, an interesting idea. This seems to me like a terrible explanation of why people produce discourse about angels and gods and demons. It's not because these are interesting ideas that stick. I, and I give the example in the chapter on Recremont uh, about witchcraft among the Azonda from um, E.E. E. Evans Pritchard's fantastic book on uh, witchcraft in, in Africa. He points out that they, they believe in uh, witchcraft, but they tend to only talk about witchcraft when they're pissed off about something, right? That some neighbor did something that offended them. So suddenly they're like, oh, I think that maybe my neighbor is a witch and he bewitched me. Well, those kinds of accusations are brought out apparently only when there's some sort of moral issue at stake in the community and they can gain social standing over their neighbors by accusing their neighbors of being witches and can get the whole community to be like, oh yeah, we think he's a witch too because his behavior is clearly unacceptable. The talk about witchcraft might not be motivated by, oh, I did my barn burn down. I, I can't think of any reason other than maybe a witch did it. I think that the cognitive science Scientists of religion often think that religious people are just stupid, right? That, oh, I, I can't come up with any better reason, so it must have been witchcraft. Or maybe their behavior is better explained by they're really pissed at their neighbor for something their neighbor did, and therefore they called their neighbor a witch because that was successful in getting their neighbor to stop that behavior that uh, was offensive to both him and the rest of the community. Maybe these people aren't stupid, but actually have a really intuitive grasp of the usefulness of accusing their neighbors of being witches, independently of whether or not they truly believe that witchcraft is real or not. I think that, that to understand why people talk about angels, demons, witchcraft, and stuff like that, we do not do well to start with, wow, these people are stupid. How, how could they believe such stupid things? 
And we would be better off understanding that they're just like the rest of us. And maybe they talk about witchcraft for the same reason that we write reports about assessment, uh, because it's useful for accomplishing something in our social context. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And one thing that I was thinking of while I was reading the chapter on Recremont is that like, it seems to me that a, a lot of folks in the study of religions or certain parts of the study of religion seem to fear that if we approach what people say within with a hermeneutic of suspicion, that we are denying them some type of agency, that we're ignoring the fact that they, you know, are actors in the world that could potentially be acting on their beliefs. But I think that Recremont actually really accounts for this because we're not denying their agency, right? In fact, we're granting them the agency and, and the, the benefit of the doubt that they know their discourses really well and they know how to operate within them successfully. So yeah, I found that to be a really useful term. E.E. E. Evans Pritchard himself was like, uh, I don't believe in witchcraft, but I had to talk about witchcraft to, to get anything done in the community. For, for me to be taken seriously, to, for them to talk to me and engage with me, I had to use their rhetoric. I had to use their discourse. E.E. E. Evans Pritchard wasn't stupid. He knew why he had to use their rhetoric. Maybe they're not stupid either. Maybe they produce rhetoric for the same reason that he did to prevent them from excluding him from the community altogether. I could talk about this all day. I am (laughs) conscientious of the time. So I want to get us to our last question really quick. Before I ask spoilers ahead, we're going to jump to the conclusion. So if you haven't read the book yet, uh, you might want to tune out until you have a chance to read the conclusion. One of the things that listeners may have noticed as we've gone through, we talked a little bit about religious discourses, a little bit about religion, but it hasn't been the bulk of of what we've been talking about. Religion itself is not a term that you come to or use frequently in the text, particularly not as as like a, an analytical category or a theoretical category. In your conclusion, you basically state that religion doesn't function as an analytically useful tool for you. I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about what brought you to this conclusion. To best understand this, I think that we have to take into account my goals, my goals as an educator, but also as a scholar. I have this on my own webpage. What are my goals as an instructor in the classroom? One, to show students that societies are never set up in ways that benefit everyone equally. Two, to show them how those asymmetrical power relations are sustained and contested over time. Why don't people revolt when they are the losers in the society? So I'm interested fundamentally in drawing attention to how uh, relations of domination maintained, contested, created in the first place, et cetera. That's my primary goal. When I look at how to show that, how to show that to students, how to show that to other readers, I find discourse analysis and ideology critique to be the most useful tools. That if I want to show people how domination works, I have to turn to the discourses that they use and the ideologies that they circulate. So looking at relations of domination, I have a chapter where I talk about racism in America. I could have used an example that was more explicitly religious according to the way that people normally use the term, right? I could have talked about uh, Ham's curse. In the 19th century, uh, Christians said that the reason why we have to accept that African-Americans are slaves of whites is because they're descendants of the character Ham, who is one of the sons of Noah, who was cursed by Noah to be he and his descendants were going to be perpetually slaves of others. So whites in the U.S. said, well, these 
black people are descendants of Ham, and therefore they must be slaves. It says so right there in the Bible. Now, which example I choose either could work well, right? I could have a whole chapter saying, here's how to apply discourse analysis and ideology critique to Ham's curse. I chose racism in America today. Here is how we can understand Prager used propaganda. This is the discourse they're producing. This is the ideologies they're circulating. And these are the material effects that they obscure or cause to happen. When I'm doing that, what is most useful to me is how the discourse produces relations of domination and what the discourse obscures. By doing a discourse analysis and ideology critique, I learn everything that I want to learn about Ham's curse or Prager's discourse. If I went one step further and said, but let me add that um, Prager's discourse is secular and Ham's curse discourse was religious, I just honestly don't think I'd learn anything from adding that point. Categorizing one as religious, one as non-religious doesn't tell me anything remotely additionally of use. The fact that one discourse was used to oppress Black people in the 19th century and one is used to oppress Black people in the 21st century, that's all I need to know. Knowing that one's religious and one's secular doesn't, I don't think, tell me anything remotely of value. Um, and in, in fact, I think that treating them as if they were fundamentally different obscures more than it reveals. If we treated them as if they were the same, hey, there's a an ideology that justifies domination in the 19th century, and here's an ideology that justifies domination in the 21st, looking them at them as similar is more revealing than to view them as totally separate or different or, you know, one's religious, one's secular. Um, I don't think that it's useful to see them as different. I want to treat them as the same because what I want to learn about them has to do with discourse analysis and that ideology critique, not whether or not they talk about gods or angels. I think that makes a lot of sense. I've been struggling a little bit with this and thinking a lot about it myself in terms of, you know, as a graduate student, you know, I look at religion and law. I look at legal discourses and I look at where, you know, questions of what gets to count as religion comes up in these questions and in these kinds of legal discourses. As I was reading through the coda, the conclusion, I was I was thinking to myself about uh, how I had actually, I sat in on an undergrad class this past semester with your colleague, Dr. Hugh Urban. And, you know, it was one of the typical assignments that we give in religious studies courses at the end is, you know, you pick a social movement and you argue, you know, oh, okay, is it, or could it be a religion? Could we see it as a religion? And if so, you know, give your definition. How are you going to justify that? There was one presentation, one group did a presentation on veganism as a religion, and I thought it was convincing. But I remember Dr. Urban saying something to the effect of like, uh, you know, I worry that we're turning everything into religion. And I remember kind of thinking about it and responding, okay, is that a bad thing? If we go out into the world and we look for evidence of things that we normally look for when we typically talk about religion, so things like ritual, things like reference to, you know, a sacred text or angels and demons or, you know, things like that. If we go out and look for that in other areas of culture that we wouldn't typically define as religion, is there anything that can be gained by by doing that, taking some of our tools from religious studies and using them, you know, in other contexts. Um, and I feel like this is kind of almost the opposite of the rhetorical move that you're making, right? Like you're saying that using the term religion analytically isn't 
like, you know, either nothing's religion or, or everything's religion feels almost like an opposite kind of, kind of move to me. So I'm wondering what you make of that. Like, do you, do you see it as kind of accomplishing something similar? Do you think it's useful at all to go through that line of questioning? Like where would that kind of fit? I remember a conversation I had, I was at the AAR or a NASA session and somebody was talking about um, how, you know, maybe we can apply the term religion to things outside of what was normally considered religion. You know, there's that famous essay on baseball as a religion. I realized at that point that there are two different groups of people who try to collapse religion and culture. One is like the move that I'm trying to make where it says religious culture is not different from culture in general. And we can use the same analytical tools to understand religion as we can to understand, quote unquote, non-religious culture. In a sense, you know, if baseball is a religion, they're doing the similar thing, except collapsing it in the different direction. Instead of saying all religion is just culture, they're saying all culture is religious in some ways. And we can analyze the religious aspects of all culture. And I think that what makes that different than what I'm doing is that most of those people approaching it from that perspective are indebted to phenomenology of religion and seeing the sacred, right? So that for them, the reason why baseball is religious is because to some extent, it's a manifestation of something sacred for some group of people. Just don't have a usefulness for that kind of phenomenological. uh, I mean, I guess you could talk about baseball as an expression of the sacred in our world, um, but I'm not sure what we would gain analytically by pointing that out. So I would collapse it in the other direction Um, by saying, look, we can understand Christian discourse in the same way that we can understand nationalist discourse. Um, But to your point, which I think is interesting and where I I would value what you're saying, is that we can bring the tools of religious studies to analyze all forms of culture, right? That the tools within religious studies might be useful for understanding nationalism. Now, if those tools are, here's how we can find the sacred in nationalism, I'm much, much less interested. If we want to use the tools of religious studies in the sense that uh, religious studies teaches us how to think critically about the cosmologies people create, how they imagine themselves in those cosmologies, the relations, positive and negative, those cosmologies set up between one group and another group, that kind of way of thinking about things might be very useful for understanding for instance, American nationalism. So it, it depends on which part of religious studies we're using. I, I, right, I'm, I'm a fan of you know the Durkheimian type of tradition where it views society as something sacred, not in a phenomenology of religion sense, but in the sense that people sacralize their societies in order to, to accomplish social work. If we're taking Durkheim on religion to nationalism, two thumbs up, we can do that all day. We're trying to find the sacred in nationalism or the sacred in baseball. Uh, I'll, I'll just pass on that. Uh, maybe somebody else finds it useful, but I don't. I don't think that finding the sacred in baseball tells us anything about how groups maintain asymmetrical power relations, and that's ultimately what I'm interested in. That makes a lot of sense to me. I have been sufficiently persuaded by this conversation. (laughs) I will leave it up to our listeners to decide how they feel. Dr. Martin, thank you so much for joining me today. I've had a ton of fun. I hope you have as well. Thank you for having me. This is, I think, my third time being on the Religious Studies Project. You guys are great, and I really appreciate you having me back. 
thank you. We're so excited to have you. And hopefully we'll have you again in the future for some episodes of Discourse as well. Just want to remind listeners before we let them go that your book, Discourse and Ideology, A Critique of the Study of Culture, is coming out with Bloomsbury November 2021. So don't miss it. And thank you again, Dr. Martin. Thank you. Thanks so much, Savannah, for that great interview. And thanks to Craig Martin for joining us here today at the Religious Studies Project. And a special thanks to you, our listeners, for sticking around for the episode. And don't forget that Craig Martin's new book, Discourse and Ideology, A Critique of the Study of Culture, will be coming out in the next couple of weeks. So be sure to check it out. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to social media and let us know what you thought. We'd love to hear your comments and questions and ideas. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram and continue the conversation there. We'd love to chat with you about the episode. And be sure to head to our website at religiousstudiesproject.com where you can find a transcript of this episode. And of course, we're appreciative of any support that you're able to give. You can sign up for monthly donations as little as $1 a month at our Patreon account at patreon.com slash project RS, or you can give us a one-time donation on PayPal. You can also use our Amazon affiliate links the next time you're shopping for anything on Amazon, and a small portion of your purchase will be donated to us here at the RSP. And until next time, all that's left to say is, thanks Thanks for for listening. listening. The RSP is sponsored by the BASR, NAASR and the IAHR and is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation. Find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com. Brought to you by editors Andy Alexander and David McConaughey and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Savannah Finver and our opportunities digest by Ella Bach. Audio editing by Alex Matthews. Video editing by Alison Isidore. Podcast transcription by Jaden Bartasius. And social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com, .co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com backslash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, iTunes and all other portals. Thanks for listening.